We're going to be in the book of John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Isn't she sweet? Sometimes. <clears throat> All right, John chapter 8. I was reminded this week of Carla Faye Tucker. Y'all remember Carla Faye Tucker, right? She was 23 years old in June of 1983. June of 1983, her and her boyfriend at the time went into a home. They were casing the home, wanted to come back later and rob the place. They'd been on drugs all weekend, so they were very high, very much out of their minds. And they happened to come across the homeowners on this day. And so they both became in a rage and they picked up hammers and pickaxes and they killed the man and the woman. Both bodies had over 20 stab wounds apiece. Of course, there was a, a trial after that and, and both of these were uh, sentenced to uh, death. The difference is, though, that Carla Fay became a Christian. Her testimony is that after she was in prison for a uh, short amount of time, there was a puppet ministry team that came into the prison. All her friends were going and she had nothing else to do, so she decided to go also. And she went into the room and she noticed there was a, a table with Bibles on it. She didn't have any money, so she went over and she picked up a Bible. She stole the Bible, didn't realize they were free, stole the Bible, put it in her pants and went through the, the service that day, went back that night to her cell, and she got that Bible out and she began to read the Word of God. She read the Word of God and on that night she hit her knees and she surrendered her life to the Lord Jesus Christ. She said, when I did this, the full and overwhelming weight and reality of what I had done hit me. I realized for the first time that night what I had done. I began crying that night for the first time in many years, and to this day, tears are a part of my life. There's a lot of jailhouse experiences, and some are real, some are fake, but her life showed it for the next 14 years. For the next 14 years, she was a powerful witness for Christ in the prison that she was at. She went on and actually went on to marry the chaplain of that prison. She said, I feel the pain of that night. I feel the pain that goes on every day with others because of what I did that night. I know that evil was there and it was in me. And I know that what took place that night was so horrible that only a monster could do it. She realized she'd messed up, and she said, there's this joy in my life, and the only reason there's a joy in my life is because I have been forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. On February 3rd, 1998, she was executed by lethal injection, and her final words were words of sorrow and joy because she knew what was coming in the next life. Her story is special because it shows the power of Christ. It shows the power of forgiveness. It shows that there is much sin, but there is also much forgiveness. I believe that as we go through life, and for many of us, we look at our life, and we see our life, and we compare it to others, and we say, well, I'm pretty good in my life. 
I have sin, but I have just a little bit of sin. And so as long as we look at our life and we just see a little bit of sin, we only see a little bit of forgiveness. But when you look at someone, you look at people in life, and they've gone through life, and they know that they have made terrible decisions. They know that they have went against God. They know that they have done wrong, wrong, wrong. And then they meet the Lord Jesus Christ, and they encounter that forgiveness. They're never the same again. The Bible says, who is forgiven little loves little. And so it would be very easy for many to go through life and to never realize how exciting forgiveness actually is. Forgiveness is the most essential, the most blessed, and the most difficult thing that there ever was. It's the most essential because it keeps us from an eternal hell and gives us eternal life in heaven. It is the most blessed because it introduces us into a fellowship with God that goes on forever. And it is the most difficult because it costs the Son of God his life. It is the most essential, the most blessed, and the most difficult, and it is the greatest need that every human has. The need that every one of us have in here and outside these walls is to be forgiven for our sins. It doesn't matter what else we have. It doesn't matter how much money is in the bank. It doesn't matter where we live, and it doesn't matter who we know. It doesn't matter the country we live in or the place that we work. If we're not forgiven from our sins, then nothing else matters. Somebody else say amen on that one. I thought that was a good point for an amen. John chapter 8. Let's read the passage, and we will uh, look at it together. John 8, beginning... In verse 1, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning and he came again to the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Verse 5. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down, and he wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down, and he wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. You'll see it begins, it says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. He came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and they sat down, and he taught them. I want you to see, it's just a regular day. It's just a normal day. This was a part of what Jesus would do on many, many occasions. He would wake up. He would wake up early in the morning. He would go. He would find the people, and he would begin to teach them the truth about God. He would teach them all day, and then he would retire over to the Mount of Olives. We see that, that Luke tells us that. We see in Mark, it said that he would retire in Bethany. Bethany was just on the side of the Mount of Olives. He had some good friends that lived in Bethany. 
Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So it's likely that after teaching in the, uh, the synagogue all day, he would retire out to his friends and he would have a good evening with his friends. He'd wake up early the next morning and he would come back and he would do it all over again the next day. It's just a regular day, but something big is going to happen. You know, if we could get that, I know this is a side note, but we get caught up in our regular days, don't we? You know, God wants to use your regular days. Tomorrow's a Monday, just a regular Monday. God could do something big in your life and through your life tomorrow. You may not be planning it. You might be planning on just getting up, going to work like you always do. But God might have a bigger plan if you would just open your eyes to it. Okay? And then we see, look at verse 3. It says, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. It says, now the law says we should stone such a woman, but what do you say? First people we see is we see the scribes and the Pharisees. We see the religious leaders of the day. Now, you've got to understand, you've got to realize these guys hated Jesus. Already at this point in the Gospels, they hated, they despised Jesus. They had violently rejected his claims and they were upset with him. Jesus had come in and he had stepped on their little toes. Jesus had come in and he had humiliated them publicly. He had destroyed them in front of their people. And so they felt shame, and they were after Jesus because of what he was doing to them. If you go back to chapter 7, we're in chapter 8. You go back to chapter 7, you see that they had already tried to arrest Jesus. It says in verse 32, it says, The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, saying that maybe he's the Christ, maybe he's the Messiah. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. In chapter 7, they send the officers to arrest Jesus. You've got to go get Jesus. You've got to bring him back. Remember what happened? The officers go, they try to get to Jesus, but they come back and they come back empty-handed. They come back and they don't have Jesus. Do you remember what they said? They said, nobody ever spoke like this man. It's very interesting. They go to arrest him and they come back and they just say, we couldn't do it. Nobody ever spoke like this man. There's something special about this man. There's something extraordinary about this man. There's something different about this man. There's something amazing about Jesus. We just couldn't do it. And so in that moment, these religious leaders realized we can't arrest him. It's not going to work. It's not going to happen. And they began to listen to the people. And the people were divided, it says in chapter 7. Some said he's the Messiah. Some said, could he be the Messiah? Did he come from the right place? And so their heads are spinning, and Jesus has gotten their attention. Wow, he is something else. He's a prophet. He is the Christ. And as the people were looking towards Jesus... The religious leaders were losing their grip. They had this tight grip on the people, and the people respected them. But as Jesus came to the scene, their grip began to loosen and loosen and loosen, and they were very scared about it. And so they said, we must put an end to Jesus, and we must act fast. We've got to get him. We've got to get him publicly. And so they came up with a plan. We've got to trap him. There's no way for us to go and get him, 
But we've got to devise a plan. We've got to devise a trap. If we put him in a situation to where there's no good answer. You ever had that in life? Somebody asks you a question and there's really no right answer. If you say this, you're wrong. If you say this, you're wrong. And so they're thinking if we set him up and we give him a situation publicly and there's no right answer, he's going to basically put the noose around his neck. And if we can do that to Jesus, then we can get our grip back on the people. Now, it's really a great plan. They have devised a great plan. They just need one slip. They just need one misspoken word. They're always trying to trap him, and they think this time maybe we've got it. Look at verse 4. And they said to him, Teacher, they brought this woman, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, there's a few problems. Here's my first problem. This seems like a big coincidence, doesn't it? I mean, think of what's going on. It's in the morning hours, and they have already caught this woman in the act of adultery, okay? And they bring her, they know where she is, they know where to find her, they get her, they know exactly where Jesus is, so they get her and they take her right to Jesus. It seems like a large coincidence. Now, here's what I think. This is not biblical, maybe. Here's what I think. I think they set her up. That's what I believe. I believe they set her up. I believe they used a man, maybe one of them, and they went and they seduced this woman and they set her up and they wanted to just find a way to trap Jesus and they didn't care at all about this woman. And here's what's disgusting about it. They came to Jesus and they wanted to look so holy and so pure and so righteous. And they wanted to come to Jesus and say, we cannot tolerate this type of sin they were not concerned about sin. All that was driving them was their hatred towards Jesus. And so they would do anything and they would use anyone to see him brought down. There's a few other problems. The law expected that when you witness someone about to sin, out of compassion, you spoke up and tried to get them to stop. That didn't happen, did it? You don't see where they tried to intervene and they said, no, no, you can't do this. This is a wrong decision. They wanted her to sin. They wanted to catch her and they wanted to use her. Her life is not important. Her feelings don't matter. She's simply a pawn in the game that they're playing. We also may ask, was the woman married or was she engaged? It's interesting because if the woman was engaged, the law required that she would be stoned. If the woman was married, she would be strangled. And so we believe that she was actually engaged to be married, but when they come to Jesus, who do they bring? Just the woman, right? There was a man. There had to have been a man. There's a man that, that is a part of this. He should have been punished too. He should have been in their arms too. But they don't bring the man. They only bring the woman. You see, they're not concerned with justice. They're not concerned with what is right. They're not concerned with what is pure. I believe they set it up and they brought the woman. And the whole point is to try to trap Jesus. 
They could have brought the woman to Jesus privately. They brought her publicly. They wanted the crowd to see it. They wanted Jesus to get tangled up in what he said and the crowd to look on and see it and walk away and say, he can't be the Messiah. That, that can't be who he is. And so they have devised quite a plan. Let's look at Jesus. It says, Jesus bent down and he wrote with his finger on the ground. And they continued to ask him and he stood up and he said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and he wrote on the ground. Now that's an interesting verse, isn't it? I would love, I would love to know when he bent down what he was writing. Wouldn't you love to know that? He wrote, the Bible says he wrote, so he's, he's not just doodling. I believe he's writing something. And maybe he, he knows these people and he's writing all the names of the men there who have committed adultery. Maybe he's writing their name and they look over and they see their name and their heart begins to beat uncontrollably. How does he know that? Maybe he begins to just write different names and the sin that they've committed recently as he just sits there and he just writes and he writes and he writes. Maybe he begins to list the Ten Commandments, proving that everyone here has broken the Ten Commandments. Well, we don't know what he's writing. <clears throat> the Bible just says that calmly he knelt down and he begins to write. And they keep on pestering. They keep on saying, hey, what do you say? What do you say? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And the Bible says that Jesus stood up and he said, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. His calm words must have caught them off guard. They never anticipated that he was going to turn the tables. They, they never thought of that. They had this whole plan mapped out, and they never thought there was a chance that he was going to turn the tables. But it, it's beautiful the way he does it. Did you notice when he says that, he upholds the law. He, do, he doesn't diminish the law. He does not bring the law down. He does not tear the law down. All he requires is that a sinless person be the one to throw the stone. And so he exposed the heart of the men standing there. He highlighted the significance of compassion and forgiveness. Now, we read that and don't, don't at all think that Jesus doesn't care about sin. He does. The whole Bible makes that clear. We are to be people who are set apart, who are holy, and who are pure. What Jesus does is he sees past the woman, he sees past the sin of this woman, and he sees the corruption in the men who are standing all around. And he begins to expose their real motives. He begins to expose who they really are. In verse 8, it says, and once more, he bent down and he wrote on the ground again. We don't know what he's doing. Maybe he's finishing his list of the commandments. We have no idea. I think it's interesting because Jesus was not like most preachers. Most preachers can have one sentence to say, and it takes them 23 minutes to say it. 
I mean, you've got to say the sentence, you've got to explain the sentence, you've got to give an illustration, you've got to give an example, and so you've got to go all the way, and most of the time, we end up killing our point because it takes us so long to get through it. Jesus didn't do that. He understood the power of silence. And so he made one statement, and then he kneels down, and there's silence. And in that moment, they begin to think. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And they begin to think in their heart, and they begin to realize, I'm sinful. I have sinned. I've messed up. I know that. I realize that. I understand that. And the Bible says, one by one, beginning with the oldest, they begin to leave. They left. Maybe the, the older ones were a little wiser. They weren't so self-righteous. They've been around the block a few more times. They realized they'd messed up. They realized they are trapped. They lost this game. They lost this battle. They've got to regroup and try again. And so one by one, they begin to leave. Now, remember, here's the men and the woman standing here, and Jesus has knelt down. Now, we don't know how long this went on. There's silence. We don't know what's happening, but one by one, they begin to leave until finally the last one has left. And then we come to the woman. The woman is interesting. One of the main characters we see, she does not have a minor problem. She has a terrible problem. Her life is in jeopardy. She has broken the law. And she knows it is fully appropriate for her to die. There's no question. There's no quibble. There's no, you know what, maybe I did it, maybe I didn't do it. She has been caught, the Bible says, in the act. She's got to be thinking to herself, this day should never have happened. This day should never have happened. Maybe this is a nightmare. Maybe I'm about to wake up. Please, God, let me wake up from this nightmare. And she finds herself on this morning, and these men come in, and they grab her, and they pull her through the city, and she's most likely half naked, and she's being pulled through the city. And as she's being pulled through the city, people are looking, and they're pointing, and they're laughing, and they're saying, what is going on with this woman? Everybody's watching. Everybody's engaged in it. Everybody's looking at it. In all her life, she's never felt so much pain and so much shame and so much humiliation. This is a terrible day. And she wants to just disappear. She's wishing, I would have never been born. She hates herself and she hates what she has done. Why did I do this? What was I thinking? I have ruined my life. I have thrown my life away. I hate this so much. I want to do it over. I wish I would have made a different decision. And she's probably wishing that someone would just take a rock already and bash her head in because she doesn't want to live any longer. It is so bad. It is so difficult. There is shame on her heart. There is guilt and there is turmoil. And the sin has brought this upon her. And so she comes to this scene and she's, she's standing here and she's watching this man, Jesus. She knows who he is. She's seen him. She's heard of him. 
And she watches as he bends down, and she's thinking, what is he going to say? What is he going to do? And then she watches as one by one these religious men begin to leave, and they're walking this way, and they're walking this way, and she's just standing there frozen. She doesn't know what to do until finally Jesus stands up. Jesus stood up and said, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And then the woman speaks, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus did not want just to free her from these religious leaders. Jesus did not just want to free her from death. Jesus wanted to free her for all of eternity. You see, Jesus was actually concerned with this woman. He looked at this woman, and everybody else was laughing, and everybody else was pointing, and everybody else was going on. But he looked at this woman, and he had love. And he had compassion, and he saw a beautiful woman standing there, a woman who was scared to death. And he wanted to give her salvation. The Lord wants to give everyone salvation. I love that. Doesn't matter where we've been. See, some of you, maybe you're in here tonight, and like this woman, you're walking around, you've got so much shame and so much guilt, and so much sorrow. You feel like you've messed up so many times, and it's like you're, you're just standing there like this woman. The Lord does not come to condemn you. He's not here. He's not here to just condemn you and push you down and push you down. The Lord comes so that you can have freedom and so that you can leave your life of sin. And all we see is the woman leaves. Now, this is a day that she would never forget This is the day that she was given a second chance. This is the day that her life changed forever. And she was to go and to leave her life of sin. Micah 7, 18 and 19 says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever, but he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all of our sin into the depths of the sea. It says that he remembers our sins no more. The most blessed, the most needed, the most essential thing that puts us all in here on the same level is that we need forgiveness. It doesn't matter if you look at your life and your sins are as high as the heavens. It doesn't matter if you look at your life and you think you've just sinned a little bit. None of that matters. We are a broken, lost people, and we need the forgiveness that only comes through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to ask you to close your eyes and bow your head. I want you to see that forgiveness is not based on innocence. This woman was wrong. She was not innocent. She had messed up, but she could still find forgiveness. Forgiveness is not based on the severity. You say, well, as long as I don't do too much, this woman did a lot of wrong. 
This was a bad thing, but she could still find forgiveness. Forgiveness is based on the love of God. Forgiveness is what stood between this woman and death, and forgiveness is the same thing that stands between us and death. And apart from that forgiveness, you will find a second death, an eternal death. Forgiveness shows the desire that Jesus has to heal and to not condemn. And so my question is, have you experienced that true forgiveness? Have you had a time in your life that you have experienced that true forgiveness? Could be that somebody's in here tonight and you don't know. You don't know if you've ever truly been forgiven. We don't have it set up to do an invitation, but is there anyone here Anyone here, and maybe the Lord's spoken to you through the scripture tonight, and you don't know if you're saved? You don't know if you've ever experienced that true forgiveness? Nobody's looking around. Let me just ask you, if, if you're here and you don't know if you've ever been saved, would you just lift your hand up? You've never been saved, and, and maybe you want to talk about it. Maybe you want to know more about it. But you don't know if you've experienced that true, life-changing forgiveness. I just believe the Lord is, is here to offer that, just like for the woman. He's here to offer that for you right now. Anybody here, just lift your hand up. You don't know if you've experienced that forgiveness. Okay. We got, would y'all take her out and talk to her? And, uh, and nobody looking around, everybody just, just keeping your head bowed. Anybody else? Anybody else? You don't know if you've experienced that, that life-changing, true forgiveness. But today could be the day. For the rest of us, I believe this is, this is the truth right here. We need to realize and we need to remember that the forgiveness that we have did not come cheap. It cost the Son of God his life on a cruel cross. And so we need to realize the price that was paid so that we can be forgiven and we need to rejoice over that and we need to live a life that shows our gratitude. And secondly, we need to be people who are forgiving. Forgive others. Look at people. See people the way that Jesus looks at people and be the first to forgive, the first to move on, the first to show love, and the first to show compassion. Lord, we thank you for tonight. God, thank you for your, your scripture. God, how it speaks to us. Lord, we thank you for forgiveness. Lord, apart from forgiveness that only comes from you, we would have no hope. There would be not one ounce of hope, and we realize that, God. We would be lost, and we would be condemned to eternity in hell, separated from you. So, God, we are grateful tonight. We are thankful tonight for your love, for your forgiveness, for salvation that only comes through you. God, thank you. Thank you for all that entails. Thank you for the death, God, the perfect life, the resurrection, all that that entails so that we can have salvation, God. We thank you for that. Lord, I ask that, that our life will show it. Our life will show that we are set apart, that we are different, that we have a purpose, and that we have a mission. And so let us to live lives that honor you and all that we say and all that we do and all the ways that we act 
in all the ways that we live. Lord, it's in, in your name that we pray. Amen.